If you've got your Bibles, you can open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll get there in just a minute. 1 Peter chapter 2. As you're turning there, I just want to say uh, briefly uh, a word of thanks to Chandler uh, with RUF and Chris for filling in for me the last couple of weeks. Uh, as, a, as a pastor, as a preacher, it's always a blessing whenever uh, somebody can fill in and, uh, and uh, can stand up here and uh, not just fill in a spot, but that can actually bless the congregation with the preaching of the Word, and uh, they both have done that well, and it is uh, a tremendous blessing for me, and I hope that you guys were blessed as well over the last couple of weeks. Um, it's good to be back. I'm always excited to be back, always ready to go, uh, and I mean that when I say I'm always excited to be back, because not every pastor can say that. A lot of pastors come back and they're like, oh, it's you guys again. Uh, but that is, not, uh, that is not me at all. I mean it. I'm glad. And so thanks for being that kind of church that I'm happy to be back and be a part of. Um, back in First Peter, and Peter is getting ready uh, to launch out into a new section of his book. Now, I know that Chandler didn't preach from First Peter last week, but Chris did the week before uh, and, and did a great job kind of establishing the, uh, what, what Peter's talking about and who we are uh, as priests, as a community, as a living house together, uh, built together, uh, totally dependent upon uh, one another. Now he's getting ready to shift gears a little bit and go into something, uh, something different. He's going to give us some very specific advice about how this new Christian community that he's talked about, about what this new Christian community uh, should look like in a world that is very different and clearly has some very different values. Just to step back a bit, a reminder uh, the series is called Not Home Yet, An Exile's Guide to Waiting and Living. And so far, Peter has laid, uh, laid into some deep theology uh, in chapter 1 of his book. And in the early verses of chapter 2, he's driven home this idea that we are aliens in the world. We are not home in this world. Our citizenship here is secondary uh, at best to what, uh, what, what is primary about us, and that is that we belong to God and our citizenship uh, and we are, it, it's to another kingdom, and we are ambassadors and representatives of that kingdom. This world is not our home. And he for us, because as he shifts gears, he's going to take this theology that he's given, and he's going to give us some very direct, very specific instructions about how Christians are supposed to live in this world. And I'm just going to tell you right now, y'all aren't ready for what's about to happen over the next few verses. Peter is going to absolutely blow your mind. You're not ready. So hang in there with me, because we got a lot we got to talk about over the next few weeks, and I hope some of you are still here a few weeks from now. But if you're not, it's going to be because you got an issue with Peter, not me. At least that's my prayer. Uh, so 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, let's just give you a foretaste of what's coming uh, this morning and over the next couple of weeks. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, as those who this place is not their home, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We'll stop right there before we get into the juicy stuff. But uh, as I said, Peter's shifting gears, and he's now going to lay out for us how we are to live. He's laid out the theological background of what we are called to be and who we are. Now he's going to take that theological background and he's going to say, and this is what it looks like. Here's what it transfers to. Here's how you live now in this world that is not your home. 
He's not, he's not just going to teach us how to live. He's going to teach us how to live as exiles. Now, I know I've beaten this point to death over the course of the last year talking about exile, uh, but I'm going I'm to do it again this morning because it's key to everything Peter does in the rest of this book. It's key to everything he's going to uh, give us instructions, especially uh, in chapters 2, 3, uh, and 4. Uh, the idea that we exist in this world in a way that acknowledges nothing about this world belongs to us. That's, that's Peter's entire framework that he's about to, he's about to give you uh, all these instructions. That this world is not our home, it's not ours, we don't lay claim to it, that we are about something outside of what is around us. Not just in some theoretical sense, not in some like academic theory, ivory tower sense, but in a very real sense, we should live as though we are pursuing things that are not rooted in this world. I remember I went on a mission trip to uh, Nicaragua. This was uh, several years ago, and, and I remember how strange it felt for me to be there just for three or four or five days. If you've never been on a trip like this, I so encourage it because it's so helpful to kind of get your mind around uh, what Honestly, a lot of different things. But one of the things that was really helpful for me uh, is that it helped me kind of see the way that I was to kind of live my life in the sense that I'm just passing through. I was just passing through uh, in Nicaragua. I went down there and, 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 and I, wasn't, I wasn't going there to put my roots down. I wasn't going there to establish anything uh, forever. I, I was just there for a very short period of time. I only packed the essentials. I packed light. I didn't pursue any of the creature comforts that I typically uh, had here. I rode two hours in the back of a pickup truck up bumpy uh, mountain roads just so I could go and visit with a pastor for 10 minutes, pray with him, and tell him he's doing a great job, and then turn around and ride right back to the city in the back of that pickup truck. I would never do that here. For a dozen reasons, I would never do that here. But that's what I was doing there because I was just, I was just there to serve. I was just there to, to be able to, to care for the, the, the people that were there. I played soccer in an orphanage when I was in dress clothes against kids that were wearing their flip-flops on their hands to make sure that they didn't break their flip-flops, and they schooled me, these seven- and eight-year-olds. Uh, but I was just there just kind of like hanging out. I was there to try to let those kids have some, some fun. I did things that made me very uncomfortable because I knew that was just part of the deal when you go on a mission trip like that. It wasn't home for me. I was just passing through. I had no rights to demand in that place. No expectations of the home where I was staying. I just needed to get through the week. And why is that? Because it wasn't my home. I was just passing through. I knew it was a temporary place for me. This is Peter's mindset for everything he's about to tell us and how we exist in this world. And you'll know it as soon as we read the rest of it, that this is what Peter is trying to show us. <clears throat> He's got one agenda in mind for Christians as he writes this. Now remember who he's writing to. He's writing to, to Christians under persecution, not to the point of martyrdom yet, but it's heading in that direction. He can see it's heading in that direction. He's writing to Christians that are dealing with a state-sponsored persecution, or at least state-encouraged He's dealing with Christians that are, that are constantly being robbed, that are being taken advantage of, that have become social outcasts, that no longer fit into the system of the Roman Empire. 
And he's writing to say, live in such a way that leads to holiness, that leads to a very different way of life than the rest of the culture around you. Live in such a way that you glorify God in the things that you do. And so that's my goal here this morning too. I want the next few weeks to shape us, to mold us into what God would have from us. But I'm warning you, this is not going to be easy for any of us. So if you don't believe me, listen to Peter's first instructions that he gives where he says specifically, this is how you live as exiles. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So I wonder as I read that, how many of you are already like, but, but wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hang on. Like, you're already saying, hey, hey there's, uh, what's the exception? There's got to be, what's, what's the yeah, but? There's got, I, I know that that's what you're feeling, because that's what I feel whenever I read that at first. I mean, we're talking about a, a, an emperor set on eventually lighting Christians on fire. An emperor that eventually will crucify Peter upside down. Will have Paul beheaded. And he says, be subject to the, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or his governors sent by him. And he says, honor everyone, fear God, honor the emperor. Peter tells the people in these areas around Rome that are seeing these societal pressures increase, that are on the verge of seeing martyrdom as the official sanction of the state government. He's looking around at at this ever increasing persecution of Christians that is growing, and he says, honor the emperor. And then he says what's really the key word for the next couple of weeks, submit yourself. Submit yourselves to the authorities that are above you. And I just know before I even finish reading those five verses, most of you are already saying, yeah, but, yeah, but. I mean, I'm telling you, that's, that's exactly what I do. I mean, after all, we are Americans. And I just want to push back a little bit right here. This is a great way to expose your own personal worldview that you don't even know exists, right? Because we are Americans, and I love studying about the Revolutionary War and the Revolutionary time period. That's my favorite thing to to, to study about, to read about. About every third book that I read or listen to is going to have some tie-in to the Revolutionary War. I love to, 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 to study that, to think about all the things that were at play during that time. It's a complicated thing to look at. Some of the most interesting reads that I read are the ones that look at the religious makeup of Americans during this time and how much religion really played into the cauldron that was the the revolution in our colonies. Much of the blending of church and state was what kind of led to the uh, the eventual unrest in the colonies at the time. 
Sometime in the mid-1700s, Benjamin Franklin created and printed uh, this, this image. If you guys can put that image up there, the, the, the join, join or die. You guys seen this before? You guys know what, what this is here? So this was printed, put into a... Uh, you, you can leave it up there for a minute. It, it, was, it, was, it was printed, put into a newspaper, and it was meant to be a joke, kind of like one of the first really kind of political cartoons, because what, what, what Franklin was suggesting is uh, as a means of a, of a joke to play on England, is that uh, for, for every prisoner that they send to us, y'all know that that's the history of the, the, the state of Georgia? Like, it was, it was a, a place for outcast prisoners to go that England didn't want. want. They sent them to, to Georgia. And uh, the colonies were like, gee, thanks. We appreciate you sending us all your prisoners. Really, that's, that's kind. So for every prisoner that you send, we're going to send you a rattlesnake back. And we're going to release it in your cities and just see how it goes. Uh, there were plenty of, of uh, timber rattlesnakes around in the, in the colonies at the time. And so uh, what, what Franklin's proposal was, let's just send these back overseas. We'll do a one-for-one exchange and uh, we get a prisoner, you get a rattlesnake. That was his, his, his playful suggestion to say, hey, stop sending these guys over here. We don't want these guys uh, these guys over here. It only seemed fair to him. A few years later, this became, uh, the, this became the, the, the flag that we know so well. This is called the Gadsden flag. You guys seen this before? Show of hands, you guys know this, seen this, don't tread on me. Good Southerners, yes, absolutely. We want this, don't tread on me, I'll fly this thing. This is, it's, it, it became uh, a rallying cry and a rallying flag uh, for the United States and for the colonies during this time. And in fact, it became kind of the unofficial flag of the United States uh, Navy. The snake is now no longer chopped up and dissected, but instead it is one and it is coiled and ready to strike. That is the, the history of this. And it kind of became this, this rallying thing to say, we are here and we are ready to fight. So this, this is the, the history of this flag Man, this is in us. This is in our veins. Now, I know it gets used for all kinds of different stuff today, but I'm just telling you, this, this idea, this mindset of don't come at me because I will come back at you, it is in our veins as Americans. It's just in us. We don't, we don't, you don't even realize that it's there, but it is in us. Many of the pastors of the colonies at the time set out to convince, uh, convince those in the area that a, that a rebellion against England was not only inevitable, but it was the morally right thing to do. Some of that they based off of fear-mongering. Just like a lot of pastors and politicians today, there's no better way to get a vote and there's no better way to get a crowd than to scare people. And to try to drive a lot of fear with them. There's a lot of association from the book of Revelation uh, with the, the, the king of England and all kinds of things that they would try to tie to. Does this sound familiar to you at all with the way things are happening in America today? You know, if you need a, a, a good scare tactic, you go and draw something about the mark of the beast and something about the Antichrist and you attach it to the current crisis and voila, you've got people scared, and you've got a crowd, and you've got people that'll give you money. This is the playbook. This was the playbook for the Revolutionary War. It's the playbook today. 
It hasn't changed. It's the same kind of thing. Just create your boogeyman and attach it to the book of Revelation, and here we go. We've got a cause. Let's roll. I dare say if you pay attention to Facebook at all, you will be familiar with all of these tactics. They're running the same plays today. You say, well, hang on just a second. This is making me a little bit nervous. Are you saying that the Revolutionary War was an immoral war? Are you saying that the Revolutionary War was not a war that should have been fought? Are you saying that this country was founded on something that never should have happened at all? That is a very complex question that is way outside the scope of what my sermon is this morning, but I would love to have a conversation with you about it if this is like your thing and you want to talk through it. I would love to be able to do that because I find it fascinating. It's way outside of what I'm trying to do, but, and I'm not sure that we can honestly fully answer that question unless we were living there at the time and understood all the things that were at play there. So honestly, I'm not trying to say anything about the morality of the Revolutionary War. What I am saying is that Americans, the Revolutionary War and the spirit of the Gadsden flag run deep in our veins. In sociology, there's this thing called the creation myth. Now, don't get hung up on that word myth. It's, it's the creation story. And what they will tell you is that institutions, organizations, uh, nations, anything that, 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 that is a group of people, they, the origin story of that group is massively important to how that group sees themselves. It's massively important to how the, 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 the worldview, it's one of the most powerful things that a culture has in determining how it is shaped. Whatever your organization you're talking about, your, your background, your, your, your family, knowing where you came from, and, 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 and all of those type of things will frame your values in ways that you don't even understand and that you don't even see. Part of the American creation story is that we were born out of a righteous rebellion against a tyrannical king in order to secure our inalienable rights. That's part of our creation story as a country. And it is in some way in your veins, in there somewhere. Whether you, you, you know it and you see it or not, it's just simply a part of how we view the world. We assume that the idea of rebellion is right and moral. In fact, that rebellion against the man is not only acceptable, it is the good thing to do. It would be immoral not to fight back against the man. And again, whether or not the Revolutionary War was morally justified is a complicated question that I don't want to answer. The fact is that for the last 250 years, Americans have believed that it was morally right. And that shapes us today. So I'm, giving, I'm going through this long track of history because I'm going to bring it back to this. So when we hear from Peter that we are to submit ourselves to the authority over us, even an authority like the Emperor Nero who was over Peter, it crawls all over us. Every one of us says, ah, that can't be right. That, what, no, Peter, that's, like, that's not, we're not doormats. We don't lay down. We fight back for our rights. We don't, we don't lay down at all. It makes us either mad, or we outright dismiss it, or we immediately say, okay, what's the exceptions? But remember who Peter's writing to. 
These guys were not quite martyrs, but they were on their way. Can you imagine if Peter were to write that to American Christians today? Honor the president that's about to have you murdered in the next few years. It would be like, no, Peter would be, Peter wouldn't make it on Twitter. They would tear him apart. They'd be like, you're crazy. You're a liberal. What are you talking about? You can't say this kind of stuff. And yet here it is right here in our Bibles. So what do you do with that? What do we do? How do we handle a text like this? I mean, it's clear. The plain reading of what Peter says is not in question. But like so many things, like you can't just proof text this. You can't just just bring this up. Because after all, Peter is the same guy that if you go to the book of Acts, whenever he's told to stop preaching the gospel, he says, you do what you have to do to me. I'm going to obey God rather than men. He says that to the officials. Same guy. So how does this work? How does Peter get to say, I'm going to obey God, not your laws, and then say, honor the emperor, submit to the authorities? How how do we reconcile these things? I'll tell you what, it's interesting. If you go back and you look at different different preachers, I've tried to go back and look at a handful of different preachers that, uh, that have covered this passage over the course of their ministry. And what's really interesting is it totally depends upon when this sermon was preached, how they handled this text. So if it was preached in the 80s and Ronald Reagan was president, they're like, yeah, submit to the government. Of course, this is what we should do. If it's preached in the 90s when Bill Clinton was president, it's like, okay, it doesn't really mean submit to the government. Here's here's what it means. And let me tell you why you don't really have to do this. If it's more recently, I'm just telling you, you go back and you see this and you see the games that get played. It's totally dependent on who's president, how preachers apply this text. We can't do that. You just can't do that. We can't play those kind of games. What is it that Peter wants us to take from this? We can't play those kind of games where our, our, our politics determines what our Bibles say. We have to say that our Bibles determine what our politics are. That's how that has to work. And I'm talking to Republicans and Democrats. So what do we do? Do we really just kind of become doormats? Roll up our flags and go home and do what we're told? Put away our, our don't tread on me flags? That's not the American way, so that can't be the biblical way, right? Because those two are always the same thing. So what do we do? After all, you know, the, the rallying cry, the lion's not sheep, right? Y'all seen that stuff. Lions, not sheep. We don't want to be sheep. We don't want to be followers. We want to be lions. We want to take charge. That's, that's the American way. So what do we do with it? Which one are we? Sheep or lions? Is it that simple? It rarely is that simple. The application of what this says is more nuanced than most people would like. First off, in America, we have a unique position compared to almost anyone in the history of the world. I think we forget this. We think that our model of government is normal. It's not. 
It's exceptionally rare in the history of the world. But thanks to the founding fathers and the government they set up, baked, baked into our government is a rebellion process that happens every two years. We can throw out half a government every two years if we want. We can throw out the executive branch every four years if we want. Peter didn't have that option with Nero. He was stuck with Nero until Nero said, I'm done, or until somebody stabbed him in the back. But we have that option. So, so baked into our government, we can, we can lead a rebellion of our government, if you want to look at it that way, through a vote. On top of that, our Constitution grants each of us the right to speak ideas, argue against our leaders, and convince others of better ideas and better ways to govern. So our, our ideas have a chance to be adopted in the marketplace. Peter didn't have that option. Peter speaks out too loud against Nero. Peter's going to die. That's why Jesus died. Because they thought he was speaking out too much and was about to start a revolution. And they wanted to, to kill it before it started. So they, they killed the leader. So that's a little bit different for us. That's part of being an American, is the ability to, to, to put forth ideas and to compete for those, have those ideas compete for uh, allegiance and attention. But in America, that's fair game, even though it wouldn't have been for Peter. So we are free to utilize the tools of our citizenship here in order to protect ourselves and put forward our ideas and the gospel. Paul does this in Acts 22. If you go look at Paul in Acts 22, he appeals to the officials who are about to have him uh, at least jailed, if not killed. And he says, I'm a Roman citizen. I deserve the right to be heard. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We didn't know you were a Roman citizen. There were rights that came with being a Roman citizen. And he doesn't hesitate to invoke those rights. So we as American citizens have the tools our government has given us at our disposal. So we are in a situation which even though we... It doesn't always feel like it, and certainly we don't like to talk like it because, man, as Christians, we love to feel like we're persecuted for some reason. But, but we, we, we are in a situation where the government removes a lot of the friction that Peter is actually probably feeling right here. So it's a little bit different for us. So we can, we can acknowledge that. But it's not entirely different. Because he's still talking about the picture of what a good emperor would look like and how a good emperor would rule. He would restrain the evil impulses of the people, and he would celebrate those that are doing good in the kingdom. But regardless of whether or not they follow this task well, that they, like they are supposed to, Peter's command is still to honor the emperor. So why would Peter instruct us to honor a man like that? By all historical accounts, he was not honorable, especially towards Christians. Yet Peter says, honor him. Why would he say that? The answer is in verses 11 and 12, what we already read. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and, uh, and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against you. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter says, don't go stirring up trouble with the emperor because Rome is not your home anyway. Because this kingdom is not the kingdom you are most invested in. This place, this, 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 this country, this area, this, this province, this, uh, this empire will pass away. It will one day be gone. But you can show them something about 
about who you belong to and what really matters in the way you handle your politics and the way that you show love and honor even to the the least honorable person in the room. So what Peter wants to say is that if you show honor in this way, what it shows is that this world is not the most important thing to you. It communicates to everyone else around you, you've got yourself invested in something else. You've got yourself invested in something better. I think what Peter is trying to tell us as Christians is that we need to pick our battles very wisely because the battles we choose to fight will say much about what we value the most. If all our battles are political battles, then that will tell you a lot about the kingdom that you are most invested in. Peter wants us to use our potential conflict points, and there are conflict points. Don't misunderstand. I do not think he's calling us to lay down and just be doormats. There are conflict points. Peter says as much whenever he says, I've got to obey God, not men. But I think Peter wants us to use our potential conflict points not as a place to fight a battle, but as a place to show that the things on this earth are not the things that we are most invested in. That our passion and our obsession is not with this kingdom, but with the kingdom of Christ. If you see Christians that are way too invested in politics, Do you want to know why that is the case? It's because our culture is way too invested in politics. And we often act and look just like our culture. This is exactly Peter's point. When that friction comes, this is a chance for us to set ourselves apart. And this is the much bigger concern I think Peter wants us to take. Christians have become a a people who are always looking for a fight. We're always looking for a fight. Now we can discuss the nuances of how to apply Peter's instructions all day long. I would love to stand up here and give you a list of like, here's how you apply this in seven different areas. And we could talk about vaccines, we could talk about politics, we could talk about this and we could talk about that. But here's the thing. Every one of those things is going to require a long discussion where we can say, let's sort through this, think through all the ethical implications that are involved there, and then work through how we apply this text. And so I'm not going to stand up here and give you cookie cutter applications because that just doesn't work. It just doesn't. There's too many what ifs, there's too many, you know, buts about this, and there's too many, uh, there's too much confusion about this, and there's, yeah, but you haven't seen this study that I've seen, and you haven't seen the way that this works, and you haven't, you haven't heard what, what, I, what I read that they're trying to do, and all this type of stuff, and I get it, like, it's a conversation. I'm not just going to lay into you and say, this is how you do it. But I will say that we are too quick to look for a fight. And I can tell you without hesitation, if Christians are known as a people looking for a fight, then we are not following Peter's advice here. It doesn't mean there's not a place for a fight. It doesn't mean that there's not a place for us to stand up and say, I can go here and I can go no further. But I can tell you if we're always looking for a fight, we're not listening to Peter. Far too many Christians are looking for a war to fight when we should be looking for feet to wash. 
We should be so known for our caring, serving, humble, self-sacrificing approach that when we do finally stand up and say, no, that's too far, people back up and say, whoa, if these guys are, are taking their hand from the plow of the serving that they're doing and saying we can't go this far, then maybe we need to back up just a little bit. but I don't think that's the reputation that Christians have in most places. I think we are far more known for the battles we fight than the people we serve. That is backwards. And why should we be known for the people that we serve more than the battles we fight? Because that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. That's what Peter's going to say. Skip down to verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in this body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Friends, if we're going to call Jesus our leader and our example, at some point we've got to start looking and acting like him. Suffered in silence and lived as though this place was not his home. Why? Because it wasn't. And it's not ours either. Let's go back again to verse 11. And I want you to just contrast what we just read in 21 through 25 with verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. I want to ask you a question. What is the greatest threat to our soul and our faith as Christians today? What is the greatest threat that we face today as Christians? It isn't government. It isn't cultural peer pressure. It isn't liberalism or a political party. It isn't the mark of the beast or the rise of the Antichrist. It isn't even something out there. It's something in here. It is our own sinful flesh that wages war on our souls. Which is why we need Christ's example and Christ's power in redemption, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, that we might be healed by his wounds. That's how we should wait and how we should live in a world that is not our home, longing for a kingdom that is not of this world. The gospel of Jesus frees us from the obsession with this world. It frees us from the bonds of feeling like everything in this world matters so much that it dominates everything we do. We live for a kingdom not of this world. We live for a kingdom that is not here but will be coming. That Christ inaugurated and that we will be with him when he comes. And that is the kingdom that our passion, our obsession, all of our treasure, all of our hope, all of our actions, everything that we do is leveraged for that kingdom. 
So be a good citizen. Share those ideas that we have the freedom to share. But do it in such a way that says, you know what? I'm not here to pick a fight with the president. I'm not here to pick a fight with the emperor that's going to have me beheaded in 20 years. In five years. I'm not here to pick a fight with you guys because if you kill me, then I'm just in that kingdom that much quicker. Right there with the king of all kings. That's the way we live. So the way Peter can say, honor the emperor, the way Peter can say, submit to all authorities is because he's saying, in the end, it doesn't... It, 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 It's such a short period of time. It's such a small matter compared to the weight of eternity. And the gospel frees us from all of that. And it allows us to say, I'm going to leverage my freedom not to pick a fight or to wage a war, but to serve people and to care for people and to bring this kingdom and push back on the darkness just a little bit. That's how I'm going to use my freedom. Not to pick a fight, but to wash some feet. Because that's what Jesus did. At every turn, he was being pushed to be this political Messiah. And at every turn, he says, no, humble yourself. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. I must wash your feet because that is what I have come here to do. He submitted himself. Man, we hate that word. Don't tread on me. It's in us. But Jesus said, submit yourself to the authorities and ultimately we submit ourselves to Christ so that we can serve others. That's what the gospel frees us to do. So what are you using your gospel freedom for? Maybe this morning you don't feel that freedom at all. Maybe this morning you don't feel that freedom at all because this world is your home and this world is all that you have to look forward to. And you're terrified of where things are going. Or you may be here and you may be excited with the way things are going. And you may be thinking, all right, this is great. This is, things are getting better or things are getting worse. It could be any of those things. But you are tied to this world. And I'm telling you, you come to Christ and find freedom in Him. And find freedom from this temporary place and this temporary kingdom. Find a home through Christ, in Christ, that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. You might be healed, not by your good deeds, not by your political affiliation, not by your Facebook posts, but by his wounds. That's the gospel. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, I thank you for hard words. I thank you for hard words that push against us. Father, I pray for soft hearts that would apply this where it needs to be applied. Father, I pray for those around the world that are suffering in persecution. Those here in America and those around the world that, that quite literally, if they meet this morning, may not be alive tomorrow. Father, may we learn from their example as we learn from the example of Christ that this world 
does not have enough for us. That our hope is in Christ and a kingdom to come. Father, in no way do we want to minimize the suffering that is very real in this world. But Father, help us to magnify the joy and the hope that we have in the kingdom of Christ. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.